Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos, FP's economics podcast. Every week, we take a couple of data points. We use them to try to explain the world. My name is Cameron Abadi, FP's deputy editor with you in Berlin, Germany. As always, Adam Twos, FP's economics columnist and Columbia University professor is with us this time in London. Hi, Adam. Hi, Cam. So this week, our episode is going to be a bit different. We're going to be talking about Thanksgiving the American Harvest Festival meal that happens in late November every year. We're going to do one segment talking about the economics of Thanksgiving, and then we decided we'd spend the other segment talking about things we're thankful for, because that's the idea behind Thanksgiving. And so we'll do that in the second half of the show. But yeah, in the first half of the show, our data point is $448 US dollars. That's the amount that American consumers will spend on average on Thanksgiving this year. Shoppers will certainly see a bigger price tag this year to make their favorite Thanksgiving dishes. According to the American Farm Bureau Federation, a classic Thanksgiving feast for 10 people will cost $64.05 this year, up 20% from last year. Thanksgiving is famously uh, a holiday that is not commercial in nature. There are no presents that are exchanged on this holiday. But of course, there's an economic dimension to everything, and Thanksgiving is not excluded from that. So yeah, let's just dive right in. The centerpiece of every Thanksgiving meal, or the sort of archetypal Thanksgiving meal, is the turkey that is pulled out of the oven and placed on the table for everyone to eat together. I noticed in looking up some of the economics around this that the demand for turkeys obviously surges around November every year. But at the same time, Adam, the price also drops. So I thought I'd just ask you, how exactly does that work? What are the economics of turkeys exactly? So so turkeys, for for, listeners around the world, we should say that really the only two groups of people that I know that eat turkey on a huge scale are, you know, uh, British people at, at Christmas and Americans at Thanksgiving. And I guess some Americans also eat turkey at Christmas. Um, um, but I guess otherwise it's just sort of famous as a lean meat, which isn't terribly tasty, and most people prefer chicken. But turkey in the US around this time of year is a huge deal. And the way it works is not that, as it were, they rear all the turkeys and then the poor things all get slaughtered all at once in time for Thanksgiving, because that, that wouldn't work. But instead, basically, you've got to think of the turkey population as a kind of more or less steadily maintained tens of millions of birds that are slaughtered throughout the year and then put in cold storage and frozen, which is the vast, why the vast majority of turkeys that you can buy in the US around this time of year are, are frozen. And by the week before Thanksgiving, about somewhere between 500 and 600 million pounds of turkey are sitting in cold storage around the United States, waiting to be unloaded into supermarkets. So that's about two pounds of turkey this is including bone of course because it's always the whole bird per american that's that's waiting to go onto the market so you can see what the story is basically 
there is indeed a huge surge in demand for Turkey. But at that moment, this is the moment to sell the Turkey you've stored. And so you sell it at whatever price you can get for it. And in any case, from the point of view of supermarkets and food stores generally, the Turkey is not exactly a loss leader, but it's a product on which you don't generally expect to make a lot of money. The the margins on Turkey are in the order of 20 to 30 cents per pound, as opposed to you know a couple of dollars on beef, for instance. By selling the turkey cheap, what you attempt to do is to lure families into your particular supermarket so they spend money on all the other things which are higher margin, which you're really going to earn your, your return on. It's worth saying that this year, 2022, the turkey situation is a little tougher than normal. Unsurprisingly, prices for everything have been going up, but prices for turkey in particular have been going up. So this is not going to be a cheap turkey year. Prices are about 15 to 20% up, depending on the market you're in. And this is to do with a pandemic. There is an avian flu pandemic right now running through bird populations worldwide. We should be far more worried about it than we are because this is the really nasty one, which if it has a zoonotic mutation could be devastating. In any case, it has taken out, we think, somewhere between 45 and 50 million chickens and turkeys across the United States. And that is a rather large part of the normal supply. So the there isn't going to be, let's not unleash a sort of panic buying of turkeys here through the podcast. There's going to be plenty of turkey um, to go around, but um, it'll be slightly more expensive than normal because the the supply has been hit by this uh, avian flu pandemic. Plus, all the other inputs for feeding the turkeys on the lot have gone up in price as well. So you have a supply chain story as well. So Thanksgiving is famously the busiest travel period of the year in the United States, anywhere from 4.5 million people to 20 million passengers, if we take the data from the TSA, are expected to travel to visit family to share the Thanksgiving meal with. So Adam, this got me wondering, are these kinds of spread out settlement patterns that require people to get on a plane to visit their family a function just of the size of the United States? And which direction are these settlement patterns moving? Are Americans increasingly or, or decreasingly staying near their close families? Yeah, so these numbers about American air travel during Thanksgiving are a little bit dodgy, to be honest, because you can see a figure for 4.5 million out there a lot, which is just far too low, I think, because that, that's basically less than 2% of the American population flying. The number for of 20 million seems a little bit more reasonable to me. I mean, it's still short of 10% of the population. And if you benchmark this against global movements, like the biggest movement in the world is the Chinese Lunar New Year, where you see before the COVID crisis, we saw um, just shy of 80 million people moving, which is about 5% of the Chinese population. So ballpark, my sense is that the 20 million figure for the US is much more plausible um, it suggests what, you know, seven, eight percent of the population fly long distance. We think about 50 million people travel by car. And this is consistent with what we know, I think, about where Americans live in relation to their families, because, um, you know, broad surveys like done by the Pew survey suggest that about 55 percent of American adults live within an hour's drive of at least some members of their extended family, the kind of folks you'd expect to do Thanksgiving with, probably. And that is structured exactly as you'd expect. So higher income Americans and Americans with more education tend to live further away because they go to labor markets where their skill set is more highly rewarded, whereas folks with lower education, less education and uh, lower incomes tend to be more local and stay closer to their, their primary family. And I think those trends are, again, as you'd expect, towards over time, more far flung family structures. 
But yes, this is clearly a large scale movement. I have to say that even if we take the 20 million number, it's it's slightly less than I expected. I mean, there's obviously in in modern society in a country as large as the United States, a considerable number of people who, who won't be seeing their families at Thanksgiving this year. Okay, that sounds like it's uh, potentially the data suggests that people just don't like their families as much as uh, they might claim or uh, or might think. Just can't stand the stress around the turkey, mostly. Yeah, <laughs> tell me about it. Um, so anyone who grows up in the United States learns that the origins of Thanksgiving trace back to this mythic meal that was shared between the pilgrims and the Native Americans in the colony of New Plymouth. I was curious, Adam how we should think about this mythic meal in a more historical context. I mean, was this sharing of a mutual bounty of a harvest, like American kids are taught, or is this better thought of as a kind of breaking of bread before an extended bid for colonialism across the continent? I mean, maybe another way of asking this is just how exclusionary is the Thanksgiving holiday? Yeah, I mean, it's a question that forces itself on one's consciousness, given the subsequent history of white settlement in North America and the disaster that the settlers inflict on the original native population. But I think we probably have to historicize this in the sense that the first encounter does it appear, I think, according to the sort of early American historians I'm able to read, to have been largely cooperative and indeed a celebration. There were more Wampanoag um, attendees at that first dinner in 1621 than there were settlers. Um, there, there were only 50 of the pilgrims that survived that first year. And they invited the locals who'd been extremely helpful to them in, in getting through that first terrible uh, experience of settlement. Within years, however, relations break down. And we have at least one instance in 1637 of the settler population literally celebrating a military victory over their Indian foes. In other words, essentially celebrating a massacre. It's worth saying, though, that the modern institution of Thanksgiving, and this also, I think, gives it its peculiar coloration as a, you know, an unambiguous sort of uh, celebration of American migration and, and immigration, really, dates to the 19th century. The Thanksgiving was not celebrated across the United States outside New England through to the middle of the 19th century. And the association of Thanksgiving with Turkey dates to sort of folklorist investigation of the early pilgrim dinners. The investigations took place 200 years later in the 1840s. So it was for the 200, the bicentennial of the original settlement, if you like, that in the 1820s, 30s, 40s, interest began to revive in the Thanksgiving meal. And it's not instituted as a national holiday until Abraham Lincoln's time. I mean, that Thanksgiving is declared a American nationwide celebration in 1863. And that's really, the, I think, the moment from there onwards that the modern conception of Thanksgiving takes place. And the significance of that from the point of view of relations between the white colonists and the Native American population is, of course, by that time, the game was played out. The Indian Wars had rampaged, the massacres had taken place, and they're still ongoing through to the end of the 19th century, and the structures of discrimination continue all the way down to the present day. So the but the instituting of Thanksgiving as this historicist revival of a pilgrim tradition takes place in the middle of the 19th century. So there's no direct descent from the 1620s, but instead a refashioning of this moment in light of the needs of American national political culture in the second half of the 19th century. And the commercial history of Thanksgiving really takes off, in fact, even much later, 100 years later in the 20th century. 
So I guess just to finish off, the day after Thanksgiving is famously the busiest shopping day of the year. They call it Black Friday in the United States. And I gather that the name has also even now been adopted abroad as a day for shopping. So yeah, what is the origin of Black Friday exactly? And what is its significance for the US economy specifically? Well, it seems that the way this works, and I speak very much as an outsider to this tradition, but basically the idea is the day after Thanksgiving initiates the pre-Christmas shopping season. So that's really the deal. So from the early 20th century onwards, across many North American towns, including in Canada, you see local department stores sponsoring parades. So the most famous one is in New York, the Macy's Thanksgiving Parade. And as the final float on many of these parades, you would have Father Christmas arriving to announce, now, dear children, we are, you know, you can legitimately begin harassing your parents about the Christmas gifts that you're going to get, and you can start, you know, begging to have the Christmas tree put up, and so on and so forth. And so that then, as it were, created the occasion for marketing, and as, as it were, a grand opening to the Christmas shopping season, in the 1950s, department stores began instituting a huge you know, sale on that particular day. In fact, I think some of the sales go back to the, the 1930s as well. And then it was apparently the local police department in Philadelphia that named that day Black Friday because of the chaos that would ensue. It's not, I think, until the 1980s that... Black Friday sales go truly nationwide and become the institution that they are today. That's the moment where you really begin to see sales across the country. And at that point, the name Black Friday takes on a different connotation because it's the moment the retail industry goes from being in the red to going in the black. In other words, this is the moment, this is the that over the next five or six weeks, they are going to do the, you know, the busiest trade of the whole year. Hmm. Uh, okay, well, we'll leave it there for now and, and come back to talk about things that we're thankful for this year. Hi, this show is sponsored by Better Help. So there's something I've been meaning to get off my chest, and it has to do with uh, Little League. My son is on a uh, Little League baseball team here in Berlin, and the coach is, he's great. He's extremely devoted to the games, the practices. He also expects a lot of devotion from the parents, and I often end up feeling like I'm dropping the ball, uh, you know, not literally, but, you know, figuratively in terms of getting my son to practice on time, making sure he's prepared for practices, etc., and uh, I've been called out a few times. No, I've been more than a few times. Uh, pretty regularly, I am called out by this coach in, in, in the form of text messages uh, admonishing me. And I've been meaning to tell the coach that, you know, life is busy and I can't always uh, hold up my end of the bargain. And, 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 and it would be helpful if he would not be so pushy about everything. But I do not say that yet. Instead, I carry it around in my chest and this becomes a stressor. Uh, maybe you all have stressors of your own kind that you're carrying around, big or small. What we all should know is that if we keep these stressors bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively in all sorts of ways. And that is where therapy comes in. Therapy can be a safe space to get things off your chest. You can figure out uh, how to work through whatever it is that's weighing you down. And that's just skimming the surface of what therapy can do. And it isn't just for those who have experienced major trauma. 
It's for everyone, whether you have a baseball coach in your life you've been meaning to talk to or another loved one. If you are thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It is entirely online. It is designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Visit betterhelp.com slash ones twos today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash ones twos. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Hi, and welcome back. We're continuing to talk about Thanksgiving. And as I mentioned, the Thanksgiving holiday is intended for participants to reflect on things they're thankful for, and we thought we'd do the same. So each of us decided to think of two things out there in the world that we're thankful for this year. And yeah, Adam, do you want to go first? Yeah, I mean, um, I thought uh, this is an opportunity to reflect on um, the role of Twitter in our lives. I feel pretty grateful for having had Twitter the last, uh, I mean, I joined seriously in 2015 and it's been a very big part of my life since. Uh, obviously for many people, it's been a, a major source of uh, comradeship and stimulation and information and news and entertainment and frustration and God knows what else for longer. But um, yeah, I say that also conscious of, of course, the risk of potentially losing it in the not too distant future. And so maybe my my Thanksgiving thought is how grateful I am to the, hardy troop of people who are still maintaining the system right now and uh rolling with the whatever the hardcore culture is that uh, elon musk has declared for me it's a really uh, an essential part of my not just my working life but really a community i know people all over the world as a result of twitter and really only as a result of twitter so um yeah i'm really i am grateful for it you say 2015 that's relatively late i guess in the scheme of these things super late yeah yeah yeah, yeah, I was really late to the social media. Do you remember what the sort of holdup was or what sort of pushed you over the precipice into into actually signing up for it? Oh, yeah, it was very specific. We were in Singapore and I fell over and broke my ankle in Singapore in a monsoon downpour on a very slippery surface. And I uh, had a you know broken ankle in Singapore, was profoundly frustrated with the world, was expecting to do a great you know trip around Southeast Asia and was being grumpy and impossible. And my daughter said, Dad, I think this might distract you. And said, go on Twitter. (laughs) I think that's what you need. You know, irritating people like you should should go on this platform. And that's it. That's literally it. Chaidi said, you know, Dad, you need this. You're being impossible. You need something to distract you. How long have you been on it for? I signed up. uh, I wasn't like an early adopter or the earliest adopter. But at some point, I realized as a journalist, it was a sort of necessity. And so I signed up somewhere a few years in. And I've, I'm not nearly as prolific uh, as you. I'm a lurker. I'm one of these folks who follow others and learn things that way. But for whatever reason, I've never been able to close that gap between sort of my online life and my actual personality. Like, I don't know how to actually find a way to express myself quite naturally on there. No, I'm not sure I close it. I think my daughter's thesis was I might be, I don't know, either it would be a taming device. De facto for me, I think my best self shows up on Twitter. <laughs> 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 Anyway, enough of me. What's your first grateful item? What are you grateful for? I was going to say the mediocrity of the New York Jets, the football team, uh, the American football team uh, this year. They started really well. 
They had a great start to the season. Well, that's right. That's right. Though they had this terrible, awful loss to their main rival, the New England Patriots. I think even Patriots fans would scoff at them, uh, Jets fans saying they're a rival because they're the Jets have been so bad for so long. And in some weird way, this was a relief because it's sort of, I felt like I don't have to get my hopes up for a more torturous, like, letdown later on in the season. And that's that, to me, is sort of my psychology as a Jets fan my whole life. I've been following this team that has been terrible and that I no longer want them to do well because I only think that they're going to sort of figure out a way to screw it up. So I don't know. I was hoping you could clarify why. It's literally... So you literally... You feel grateful that they've actually now reverted to the mean of of Jets' terribleness. That's actually kind of a relief. No, no, no. To clarify, I don't want them to be. I guess I don't want them to be catastrophically bad. That 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 itself is somehow dispiriting. But I actually prefer them to be mediocre. Like, don't raise your head up too high above that, and then we don't have to pretend things are going to go well. Uh, or better than that. So you don't want your heart broken, basically. Precisely. And I wonder what sort of damaged psychology I'm expressing here, because like, yeah. I, I, why would I not walk away at this point from this thing? And I realize that's a kind of economic question, I guess. I mean... Yeah, we should get to this. This is a behavioral economics question, right. isn't it? There's something here about like avoiding... And in fact, in light of the World Cup and, and being English, perhaps, sure. perhaps we have a future segment here, which is how do you survive life when you are forced to identify with mediocrity and, and the, the very high probability of failure? Because my understanding is there's this you know, economic thesis about sunk cost fallacies. Like you're supposed to walk away from something when you know it's a loss. Like you're, you know, it's a kind of mental mistake not to. And so I don't really know what this fandom that I've somehow embraced is at all, you know, uh, um, you know, but, but did you get it from your parents? Oh, no, 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 no. Or, they, or from they, school, they, from the schoolyard. You'd like to know the origins. I mean, it's just it's so silly. It's just, I don't want to be too melodramatic, but this kind of like cross that I bear in life <laughs> traces back to, to second grade. I think their quarterback was someone by the name of Boomer Esiason. And I just like that name, Boomer. Oh, but yeah, yeah, Boomer. Of yeah, <laughs> yeah, excellent. Oh, my like, God. That's what, a seven-year-old right. on Long Island. His that name was Boomer. All... And then I went to the local Staples, yeah. you know, uh, office store, and he was signing autographs. And I got his autograph. His, his, his jersey's still in my closet here in Berlin. It was signed by him from, from second grade. <laughs> anyway, because of that, because of that, here I am today. You, yeah, exactly. If I knew then, if you told me then I'm signing what I'm signing up for in exchange for that autograph. I would have, I would obviously reverse that, but I don't know. But we have to, we have to go deeper on this. We're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna go deeper on this. We're gonna do a thing on the economics of doomed fandom for sure. Yeah. <laughs> um. And anyway, Adam, you're up. What else are you thankful for? Oh, another like big one. I'm in, I'm in England. I'm seeing my family. You know, and I can only do this because uh, the pandemic has been tamed, and I am profoundly grateful for that. I mean, I have to say, like I. I uh, my dad died during the pandemic and not of the pandemic but during it and he never saw the end of lockdown really and um, my mum is doing well and fine and we're out and about and enjoy you know enjoying life in London hmm. and I'm traveling around like a madman and I would not be able to do any of this without the vaccines and so you know I've now I'm up to my fifth now <laughs> um, hmm. and um, it's a it's a miracle you know it really it's absolutely extraordinary so. 
that I think I continue in every, you know, every, every dinner you go to, every gathering you have with friends is enabled by this. You know, we've never had, I think, you know, it's always been something to celebrate being with friends, but actually knowing firsthand what it means to not be able to be with anyone that you care about really, other than, you know, the people that you happen to be, um, what was it, what we podded with or whatever. Hmm. Um, like it's really a, it's really dramatic experience. Yeah, I mean, my feeling is also there's been like a compensatory, yeah, kind of release, <laughs> precisely this feeling of describing, like, you know, the kind of isolation for so long has made one realize how important these kinds of contacts are and one seeks them out even more. Speaking of which, that's your um, your final sense of gratitude comes from that, doesn't it, that corner? Yeah, sim- well, I suppose similarly, I think this was, uh, so I was also telling Adam right before we started recording that this week, I'm hosting a number of friends who are flying in to Berlin. Uh, my birthday actually has always been close to Thanksgiving, and I'm turning 40 this year. And I'm genuinely thankful that friends from different walks of life, from different periods of life, are going to be coming here and spending a few days here. I mean, on one hand, this comes with some stresses. I'm now the host for Thanksgiving and find myself trying to figure out how to prepare that much food for what's going to turn out to be 16 people who are staying here. 16 people? Yeah, I'm uh, uh, every, every... In your apartment? Yeah, no well, no, well, I have, I, we found neighbors who are away. So one family is staying in with neighbors, yeah. but I literally have two, my two oldest friends are literally sleeping in the basement. And then otherwise I'm sort of cramming people to every corner of my apartment. And I'm thankful for it. I'm thankful for that, actually. I really mean that. Of course, there's stress and there's money and all this stuff is involved. But yeah, it struck me, what else is it worthwhile spending money on than close relationships? And I don't know if there's sort of studies that suggest that's a rational way to to think about it, but that's how it feels, certainly. There are, absolutely, right? There's that big Harvard longitudinal study where they look at a cohort of Harvard graduates and there's nothing that predicts longevity and good health better than the intensity of personal relationships. Okay, that's so, what I'll tell uh, no, them when I put, stick them in the basement. I'll tell them. It's so, good for I, where where did I read this? I read this on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. I I will. Uh, I'll uh, I'll send you the link. Um, okay. Yeah, but those those are two good episodes, right? Your your psychology, in fact, in general, Cam, would make a I'm feeling has become a rich a rich vein. We're just going to mine mm. you. We're just going to mine Cam for insights and behavioral. <laughs> that's well. Well, put me on the couch. What makes Cam tick? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we can do a series of, of, of those. Anyway, I'm also thankful for this podcast. It's been great doing this, and we will leave it there for now. Uh, happy Thanksgiving to everyone partaking. Yeah. Happy Thanksgiving. Don't burn yourselves up with the turkey. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. And enjoy Black Friday, I guess, whoever's, whoever's participating in that. Okay. Bye-bye. Ones and Twos is written and edited by me, Cameron Abadi, along with Adam Twos. It is produced by Laura Rossbrow Tellum and Rob Sachs. Our social media manager is Claudia Tady. The executive editor of FP Podcasts is Dan Efron. This show is made possible through the support of foreign policy readers. If you're interested not just in Adam Twos, but news and analysis from around the world, consider subscribing. Ones and Twos listeners even get a 15% discount. Just go to foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe and use the promo code TWOS at checkout. That is T-O-O-Z-E. 
And listeners, as always, we love hearing your feedback. You can send us voice messages on the Ones and Twos homepage on foreignpolicy.com, or you can email us, podcasts at foreignpolicy.com, or tweet us. That's at Ones and Twos Pod. Thanks very much for listening, and we will see you back in your feed next week. Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, professor of law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador, where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11th, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. Everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant. The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk. The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries. And we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone, from local fishers to nuclear physicists, on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy. And that's what this podcast is all about. Everyday Ambassador peels back the curtains of high-stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. Like giving a gift. You want to make it tasteful. You want to make it thoughtful. You thought about the other individual. You thought about what their likes and dislikes are. Or creating a fiction. Taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day -day life allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently. Or just taking the time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. 
So join me and become an everyday ambassador coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. 